I think the Diabolicon is a prime example of exploration. Um, there's that separation from, from the collective, from the norm. And then you go off. Well, where do you go off? Who gives a shit? Just go. Like, put it in a direction and keep traveling until you get to where you need to get to. And to me, the Diabolicon is a great example of that. And so one of the areas I want to start looking at are different myths, um, stories, um, television, movies, whatever, about the idea of exploration, of what is this, what are the commonalities, what are the trait, common traits to that? So the Luciferian aspect is very much connected to that as well, that, that casting out, that going on your own. radical discussion of independence, free will, liberty, and the left-hand path. This is Damonosophy 2.0 with your host, Paul Frederick. Hello, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to Damonosophy 2.0. My guest today is Dr. Lloyd Keane of Ottawa, Canada. Dr. Keane holds a PhD in psychoanalytic studies with a focus on Jungian psychology in the Western Esoteric Tree of Life. He's a priest in the Temple of Set, a master in the Esoteric Order of Beelzebub, and a member of the Order of Tiamat. Lloyd is also co-founder of the Doom Noise Sound Art Band, Obsidian Will, and the Dark Ambient Sound Art Project under a shining trapezohedron, or UAST. It will be listening to some Obsidian Will a little later in the podcast, so stick around for that. Lloyd, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you very much. Glad to be here. Great. It's so awesome to have you on. So not everyone out there probably knows you um, as well as I do. So let's start out with kind of a general question. Uh, why and how did you get involved with the left-hand path? This is a long and sordid story, so I'll try to be as brief and um, positive as possible. Um, essentially, I, I spent a lot of years in what I would consider right-hand path traditions. So um, kind of melding between solitary Wicca and ceremonial magic, um, eventually a little more of Thelema, uh, a whitewashed version, a little more solitary, a little mystical. Um, and then I sort of got involved in neo-paganism and Asatru. And uh, all of that was very, I was very dedicated to those things. It was very important for me to, to explore these areas of my life and reality. But at some point, um, just before I joined the temple, so somewhere around 2007, I would think, I had the existential uh, smashing into the wall of dread and, and just didn't know where to go felt empty, felt like I was lacking a lot of um, meaning because, you know, you can only leave so many offerings to Thor. And then you start asking yourself, am I going to do this in, when I'm 80, 90? Um, right. So, yeah. <laughs> so not, not, not to say that people that do that, it's bad. But for me, it was definitely a hollow um, idea. And so I essentially thought, well, what can I do? I need to go turn to the other side, the dark side. And, uh, 
and then I, I decided, well, this Temple of Set seems like a pretty strange place. Um, maybe this is something that I can do. Um, I filled out the application and ripped it up promptly because obviously it was a crazy idea and they're kind of spooky and scary, so I don't really want to do that. But the mystery was still there. I still felt the draw and the need to, to do that. So eventually I did hand in my application and, and um, I haven't looked back since. So it's interesting you say that because I've noticed um – you know, you mentioned in your in your in your past, you'd experienced uh, Wicca and paganism and different things like that. And I found uh, these days a lot of people that you talk to when you talk about the left hand path, and you start getting into it, and it starts to feel like you know um, they're really just sort of underneath it all. It's really just a form of paganism with mm. uh, sort of a dark aesthetic on it. So. When you were like going through this, uh, you know, sort of uh, questioning process yourself, mm-hmm. what made you think that maybe uh, the Temple of Set might have something more than you had already found out there? Um, well, I guess in retrospect, leading up to that moment where that happened, um, you're right. There was a dark aesthetic that I was most connected to. So, um Hecate or or the Morrigan or all these darker aspects of the of pagan traditions were the were the were the figures and the archetypes that I was most connected to. But what actually drew me into the Temple of Set was um, the the old website I used to have um, what click through to the, you know this monolith and has a quote from Plato, Socrates, Socrates. <laughs> One of those two guys. <laughs> and, I think it's Plato. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, that website is like, what the hell are these people about? And then you click through, and it was this bizarre blue page, and it was just there was an aesthetic to it that I guess I resonated with. That um, once I started looking at what the, the orders were about, what some of the philosophy was about, it really started to speak to me, or rather, it was speaking a language I guess I was already. Uh, familiar with, but just couldn't articulate. So was the quote, uh, the unexamined life is not worth living or something to that effect? Yeah, that, that was definitely the quote. <laughs> yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, I think it's Plato. No, so that's, uh, that's intense. So I can uh, relate to that. Um, and in my own experience, um, I found the Temple of Set prior to there being an internet, but I found the informational newsletter. And when I read that, I realized, oh, wow, there's people out there who actually know things about stuff that's <laughs> real stuff. And it just, you know, I just I just had to know more about what was going on there. Yeah. So you just uh, attended the Flambeau Noir LHP conference in Ottawa, Canada. Yes. So that's really exciting to think that for myself, thinking, wow, you know, at some point back in the late 80s or 90s, when I was like, wow, if I met even like one other person who was into (laughs) like left-hand path ideas or had read the Satanic Bible, it was like amazing So now here we are in the modern world and we have conferences like this going on. So you attended this. What was it like? Tell us about it. 
Well, I had a, I had sort of a, a heads up about it because I'm, I'm friends with two of the co-organizers, um, so I kind of knew that it was coming up, and I was, um, I was excited about it because most of the people that I connect with on the left-hand path are within my own school, so they're Setians within the Temple of Set, and you know I get to see them on conclaves or annual gatherings or you know order Skypes that kind of thing. So for me, it was more of um, being around individuals who have a common goal of becoming more and more themselves, but they don't speak the same vocabulary or they won't uh, necessarily have the same nuances that, that I'm used to being with uh, being around Sedians. So it was a really good experience to see people who live their path, you know, people that are dedicated to it. I, th- I think, well, I, I would say that um, the majority, if not everybody there does that. Um, talking some, to someone like Shawnee Oates, who's, um, you know, the, uh, the, within um, the clan of Tubal Cain. I mean, this is a witchcraft tradition that's been, you know, going on for a while now. And seeing an elder in that tradition was really, really interesting because I don't get to talk to people like that generally. Um, and so I really enjoyed that, that diversity of perspectives because you inevitably bring back your own interpretation of what you've experienced and apply it to your own initiation in your own life. So it was good to be able to just hang out, have some beer, have some great conversation, and just really meet some really cool people. So what is that? What is the clan of Tubal Cain? Um, it's a form of traditional British witchcraft. Um, I'm certainly not an expert on it. I've, I've read her um, books before. It's, uh, it's something that I would suggest, um, you know, ch- check out, look at it. It's, it's, a, it's a darker form of um, witchcraft, sort of like if you look at uh, Wicca, and the clan of Tubal Cain, they're sort of in, in um, contrast. I find. I mean, that's my interpretation. Mm-hmm. But there's definitely it's it's a it's not as theologically focused as say Wicca is. Um, it has a lot of uh, folk connections to British folklore and um, and Welsh folklore, and looking at these figures. Um, so I, I I don't feel comfortable enough to to talk about it in any greater detail. But I would definitely you know. Take take some time looking up some material on on the web on that. Is it uh, is it uh, similar to like uh, Alexander's like Alexandrian Wicca? Uh, I would say it's more focused on uh, folk tradition than than say Sanders. I mean, his was definitely more influenced by ceremonial magic, um, and I mean, so was Gardnerian material. But it's it's far more uh, traditional witchcraft, I would say, than than the more um, popular versions that we see today. Gotcha. So, uh, how big of a of a gathering was this? Like, uh, was it was it a huge? Was it like rock concert size, or was it more of an intimate type <laughs> there were thing? Twenty five thousand people there. <laughs> wow. No, there was a, there was about I think there was about fifty people all in. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that's pretty impressive considering there were people that came from. Well, Shawnee came from from uh, the UK or from England. Uh, we had people that came from the United States. Uh, you know, it was a good. Um, it was a good cross-section of individuals. You know, it seems like there's a sort of a revival of of the witchcraft thing and the Wiccan thing going on today. And I've been seeing more and more stuff about it online. And there's a resurgence of, like, you know, information about, um, you know, all these old school um, witches from the 60s. Like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of course, like, you know, there's Gerald Gardner and stuff like that. But then I've been seeing all this stuff about Alexander's. And mm-hmm. and that's really exciting to me because 
Alex Sanders is like one of the first occult type people that I ever became aware of, like way back in the day. There was a book at my local library um, about Alex Sanders, and and I, and I remember like checking that out and going, "Wow, man!" And there's lots of <laughs> and there's lots of like nudity in it too. So that's another uh, uh, plus for like you know thirteen year old boys. Uh, to be checking out from the library. But I noticed, and I recalled one thing, going back and looking at Alex Sanders, is his whole system, in addition to the, you know, there's like the Gardnerian influence, and then it's got a goddess influence, but he also talks about Lucifer a lot in in his stuff. It's a lot of his, like, rituals and stuff. He calls upon Lucifer. And um, I thought, you know, that's that's really interesting. If he was doing this now in this day and age, well, we'd say this maybe this would be considered like a uh, a left hand path or a dark Wicca or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and I think that's one of the not to. I mean, my experience with Wicca, and, and I haven't looked at this in a long time, but back in the day, you didn't have. Uh, you know, chapters didn't carry this stuff. If chapters even existed, these books weren't there. And, you know, you had your local occult shop that you went to. And basically, depending on how big your city was, Ottawa was not that big, you know, you had very limited resources. So you would have Sanders and, and Gardner and the Farrars and people like that. And those were, at the time, British traditional witchcraft or whatever. So the Llewellyn titles weren't yet coming through, you know, Cunningham Solitary Wicca or, or whatever. So there's much more of an initiatory uh, focus on it, much more of a, a dark mysticism, I guess, like connecting with, you know, the uh, the god and goddess or whatever you would look at it, that the, the energy, the force of the universe, whatever. But it was much more... Um, it was much less easy, easily come by, and therefore you had to work harder to get to that. And it was still a point where you had to work through a school, an initiatory coven or whatever it might be. And so they were few and far between. It wasn't just a matter of, oh, this is what I want to do, so I'm going to call myself a Wiccan and go ahead and do it. Yeah, that actually did at some point mean that you had to go through a, a traditional initiatory process. Right. So that was like always one of the things for me that kind of like when I was like, you know, looking into that stuff um, that, well, there was an immediate barrier right there because um, I I don't know where any of these people are. And, you know, I'm not sure how I feel about, you know, spontaneous nudity with people (laughs) I don't know very well. And, you know, looking back on it now and and maybe this gets back to the original uh, question that we had about all of this. When you look at a lot of those things, um, what they're purveying is there's is is a lot of like you know like you said energy and spells and how to do things and 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 how to change things and and stuff like that um, hmm. and and all of that stuff is good but then for some of us there's still this like greater question you know the greater question about uh, existence and hmm. uh, what what more is there beyond that that can be found yeah and i think that's where um like a devotional religion or some some tradition which one focuses on divinities or on you know becoming one with the universe that it inevitably means that the individual isn't as central to this process and for those who want to understand what is my sense of being, where am I, why am I, 
um, you can't get those answers from an external deity or external um, force. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's you. You need to figure your shit out, not look somewhere else to figure that out. And I think if you have that intrinsic assumption, um, then that's what you need to be able to follow. And that's where left-hand path comes in. If you're in a tradition that has those deity kind of constructs, then it'll be much harder to dissociate or disidentify from that. Yeah, I agree. So um, let me ask you this. This kind of leads into uh, the next thing I wanted to ask you about is you just published a book called Black Horizons Perspectives. Mm -hmm. So do you talk about some of this stuff in your book? Uh, Yeah, the book is primarily meant to be um, an example of the process that I went through to get to where I am now. So in in essence, I talk quite a bit about myself, which can be boring or exciting depending on your perspective. Oh, it's very exciting. Uh, (laughs) Excellent. But one of the things that I find frustrating is that the left-hand path isn't really focusing on producing material about process, how people manage to get to where they are. Lots of lots of spells, a lot of art, a lot of cool dark stuff, but what about discussing how someone does what they do and how they get to where they are? Mm-hmm. And that's really why I wanted to put the book out. Um, this is probably another reason why it's self-published, because this is something that's very personal, but I want it to represent, um, reflect my process, and then maybe someone will be able to see it and see themselves in that process and be able to do their own thing. You know, Absolutely. So, so who would you say is the book written for? Um, initially, it was supposed to be an internal document for the Temple of Set, but I realized I also at some point wanted to write it for the, for the public. But then I thought, well, I don't know when I'll get around to doing that public thing. So what if what happens if I try to do a little bit of both? So it's written from the perspective of a Setian for other Setians. But I tried to write it in a way that it could be anybody who's familiar with the left hand path should be able to navigate it. Anybody that's familiar with um, the philosophies that are connected to the left hand path should be able to, you know, get something out of it. It is couched in Setian terminology, but it also therefore gives a little glimpse into how the Temple of Set works, at least from my perspective. Um, this obviously isn't a, a Temple of Set document. It's it's just influenced by my experience in the school. So uh, people who are in the Temple of Set will get something out of it, and people who are not in it uh, can hopefully get something out of it too. Yeah, and so far from the feedback that I've got from a few people that aren't in the temple, um, they definitely get it. Uh, and some of them have been you know, inspired by what I've done, which is one of the main reasons I wanted to do that was to inflame that that desire to become, you know, to in your own way, whatever. This isn't, you know, some kind of recruitment uh, book. It's more of um, if you can recognize what I've gone through in your own life then start, man, go out, do something, you know, get, get that moving, um, get your, get your initiation underway because this, there's never a good time. There's never a perfect time. I mean, this kind of, um, friction is really essential to what we do. So lethargy is one of those problems. You need to just go and move, get going. Why do you think that is? Why do you think lethargy is a problem? Because there's so much, 
there's so many distractions in our everyday lives. I mean, you get up and if you're, you know, you put the radio, well, I listen to the radio, maybe one puts on the television or some fancy computer device. Sure. Um, yeah, you're being fed information. You're being fed what you should think. Um, you go to work, you do what you're supposed to do. Either you try to disidentify from work and you're like, there's work life balance and this is not my life. This is my job. Um, and therefore who are you at that point? I don't understand. Um, then you come home, you watch television or you go out and play a sport or do whatever. And all that stuff is fine, but only if you can maintain that sense of individuality, of that isolated intelligence, of, of saying, I'm doing, I'm the one that, are, that is doing all these, these things. And that's really hard to remember yourself, to, to remind yourself that you exist and that you're here, that you aren't society, that you aren't that sporting team or that religion, you're not your family, you know. You're part of all this if you choose to be, but that has to be a choice. That has to be a conscious decision and not just go along with something because it happens to be the next big thing. And that's where that lethargy comes in. It's, it's, it's a, a psychological and spiritual laziness. Right. And so to stand alone like that, um, I immediately think of the, uh, you know, the, the Luciferian principle. To me, that's the that's that's a, a really significant part of the whole left hand path paradigm is, is Lucifer who says, you know, um, or, or, or in, in the Diabolicon, Archdaemon Satan, who says, you know, I stand alone. I stand against the crowd. So yeah. why do you think it's so hard? Why do you think it's so hard to remember that? Well, because we're not we're not a society that encourages that kind of thinking. Um, you know, if you're off on the fringe doing your own thing, you're you're labeled a lunatic or a strange person or you're marginalized. Not all the time, obviously. I'm I'm exaggerating just for effect, but the fact of the matter is, individuality is not encouraged. Because even when it is, it's always an individuality within a certain you know, you know, social structure or milieu or something, um, you know, it takes a great deal of effort to first find out who you are, which means disidentifying from all the things that you're not. That takes a good number of years to do. Um, and you never know when that's going to come up again. So it's not a process that can end. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book was that it was to be my sort of new plateau. So I've got up to this point. Now, I'm, now I've put this out. And now it's time for me to continue on. Where do I go from here? What am I going to learn about myself? And that's to me is, I don't know. I just feel like there's a lot of weight that's against that kind of work. So therefore you have to get in, that inertia overcome and create your own direction. And so you need to know where you're going and how you're going to get there. What are your goals? Why do you want to do this? These are all very difficult questions. So you look at the, and correct me if I'm wrong, you, you look at the uh, publication of this book as being uh, sort of like how an artist would uh, paint a, a particular painting and say, that's it, I'm done, there's the painting, that's it. Yeah, it's in the sense that in that analogy, it'd be, so there's a, there's a mysterious need to create that painting, but then you realize that there's probably going to be a series of paintings that will look different and change perspective and change um, manifestation as time goes on. 
So this is a way for me to, you know, you're a musician, you think back to, you know, if you play in your basement, you're the best rock band ever. Like no one, no one can tell you you're full, full of shit. You're just the best. Mm-hmm. And so if you go play live though, okay, well you gotta step up your game. You gotta be able to, you know, play <laughs> or, or hope for the best. Um, you know, you've gotta go out and you've gotta be able to present yourself out there. And that's one of the reasons I did this book was because it's fine for me to never publish this even within the temple. And then next step is, well, my peers, let's see how that's going to look. Well, okay, you know, maybe maybe what I need is a little more challenge. So I'll self-publish. I'll put this out there. And then that way, who knows who's going to pick that up? You know, who knows what conversation might spark from that? Maybe horrible criticism. I found several typos, which is unfortunate. So, you know, maybe that comes out. Or maybe someone will say, you're full of shit. Here's why I think you're full of shit. I'm like, okay, but here's what I think. And then a dialogue starts. And how cool is that? Yeah. You know? Absolutely. I feel the same way. I mean, I, I feel that way about uh, Damon Osphy and other books that I put out. And I feel that way about any kind of music uh, that I put out, that this is like sort of a, you know, I'm, I'm sort of documenting in time where my mind was. And mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's a similar practice to say, writing something down in my, down in a journal or something, you know, I was here this day, such and such happened. And this is how I felt about it. Uh, it's similar to that. But like you said, you're taking this and you're putting this out there on a, mm-hmm. on a larger scale, you're taking it out of the safe contained environment, where um, you don't know what reactions are going to come back to you. But the sorts of reactions that do come back to you as a result of having put it out there are more significant. There's something more vital. There's something more nourishing about those responses that you get after they've been thrown out there and kind of gone around the universe and, and, and returned to you. That never happens if I just write it down in a, in a book and keep it at home or I, you know, paint a picture in my basement and, and never <laughs> let anyone see it or, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, or play with your dollies in the basement or whatever it happens to be. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We have to get things out and have them uh, rub against the grain of the objective universe to see what happens. So um, one of the points that you've made in Black Horizons Perspectives is that Satanism and Anton LaVey are still important could you uh, talk a little bit about what that means? Sure. Um, so I think I think there's a couple of things with that. One is that, and again, I'm only giving my interpretation of like my experience of studying uh, philosophy, is that we tend to be heady. You know, a lot of deep thoughts, a lot of conversation, um, a lot of introspection, and there's always a risk that one becomes a head in a jar. Um, and so the one thing, one of the things that I find that, um, Satanism, Levian Satanism, especially, you know, pre-1975 is there's, there's a focus on the body, on the animal aspect of us. We can't forget that this is very much a fundamental part of what we are as human beings. We have lusts, you know, we have desires, we have hatreds, we have, the whole gamut of emotional experience that we need to not forget about, you know, and that's to me indulgence, um, you know, as a term perhaps reflecting the Church of Satan or that Satanism aspect is really, really vital. I think it's it's part of the Temple of Set's roots. 
Uh, and it's also, I think, something which we can't forget. Um, so there's that aspect, the bodily aspect of it. It's also just kind of fun. Like when you look at the the audacity of sort of the satanic milieu of that, it's just, it's it's fun. There's fun aspects to it. There's antinomianism, which is something that we need to never forget. We we have to be against the grain, not for the sake of going against the grain, you know, not for just for pissing people off. That's kind of, to me, juvenile. Um, but there is a sense of needing to say, you know what, I don't agree with this. I'm going to stand for this. You know, I'm going to, I'm standing against this. I'm going to say, no, I will, I refuse to do that. Um, and that's something which Satanism is also very much involved in is that being steadfast and holding your ground. And, um, and there's the aesthetic, the dark aesthetic to it, which um, I think we still have connections to in the Temple of Set, but it's, it's a little different in the Church of Satan. It's much more, much more over the top, very garish. But in doing so, it's very psychologically um, exhilarating. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's interesting, as you mentioned, the uh, intellectual, intellectual sort of like aspect of things is when I first read the Satanic Bible, I thought that that was one of the most intellectual books I had ever read. Mm. Um, and, you know, um, I would say then it sort of opened up a gateway or a pathway in which I encountered increasingly intelligent works mm -hmm. along the same lines. And at the same time, it uh, empowered me to say, you know, um, you know, your body and who you are naturally and, and what you are is all awesome. It's mm -hmm. all just beautiful. You know, it's the first huge like cracking of the of uh, the idea of original sin, which mm -hmm. which is is uh, in, in my opinion, a uh, absolute pariah um, that infects, you know, all of the uh, Abra Abrahamic, you know, monotheistic religions of the world are all based on ideas, uh, the idea of original sin. And as well, it also pervades a lot of the secular um, or scientific community um, where they kind of have a similar idea that, you know, well, we used to be apes, we used to be, you know, brutish, like violent creatures. Um, and so we have that in our past and we have to take safeguards to, you know, uh, sort of uh, police society to avoid the, uh, uh, you know, the, the wolfish aspect <laughs> of us coming out. And again, that's something that like, you know, Anton LaVey in the Satanic Bible said, no, that's the great part. That's the good part about humanity. That's what makes us still awesome. That's that's what makes us not insects, you know? Yeah, and I mean, it's funny you should say that about the Satanic Bible, because, of course, being the white lighter that I was, that was a terrifying book for me to, like, to see the cover. Uh -huh. But I was always, you know, you're attracted to it. So, um, you know, reading over it, it's sort of like, in some ways, very common sense. It's, it's challenging depending on what your perspective is. But at the end of the day, it's about mind your business. Don't fuck around with other people. But if they come into your house, well, you're going to have to deal with that. Yeah. And, and you don't have, you know, there's degrees of escalation, I guess, in there. But, but the idea that you take responsibility for yourself, um, that's, that's vital. And I don't know why that's not a thing. <laughs> you know? Well, I, I don't either. I don't know why that's not a thing either. And I mean, it has been a thing in the past in, in mm -hmm. different, it's not just the, uh, you know, obscure 
you know, satanic factions that believe in taking personal responsibility. That's an idea that was around in the Enlightenment era. Um, and that's something that Anton LaVey was obviously very um, influenced by. Um, so it's a thing. It's just becoming increasingly not popular in today's environment. I think it got more popular, you know, post-Enlightenment uh, at, at different points in America. Like you can see around the time of the turn of the century when we had, you know, Aleister Crowley and H.P. Lovecraft and Blavatsky and Gurdjieff and just all this amazing, all these amazing ideas going on out there that that I think the sense of personal responsibility and stuff was like uh, uh, at a high Mm-hmm. Um, around that time period, but I, I think it's definitely fading out more and more nowadays. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. But ultimately, what this means, as far as like uh, the Satanic Bible, and if you dare I say the the Age of Satan vibe, I don't know mm-hmm. if that's a if that's a term, but it's now. <laughs> it is now the Age of Satan vibe really bears with it sort of that it, it, to me that's a moral basis that's a that, that's a morality that's the and to me that's always going to be the morality of the left-hand path uh individuality and personal responsibility and i know some people look at the um you know satanic bible as being somewhat in conflict with uh temple of set or setian ideas and i don't think they are in conflict at all i think they complement each other and they're speaking on different levels and and mm-hmm. o- often but um you know, uh, the, the Satanic Bible is talking about a phenomenon in terms of a of a as a, a from a moral perspective, whereas in Setian terminology, we're often talking about a similar thing, but we're talking about it from a uh, metaphysical sort of perspective. Yeah, I think I think again, speaking from a Setian perspective and my own, um, I see the. I see that satanic vibe as as a as a uh, what I would call part of the in, in my book part of the perspective Tyro the the beginner it's like the it's like the launch pad you need a good solid foundation to start your work it doesn't mean that you always stay on the launch pad because eventually you got to go travel somewhere but you need to know where you're taking off from and I think kind of that kind of vibe I think is useful it reminds us that we're animals it reminds us to to you know stir the shit sometimes and it reminds us that that initiation should be fun that there's a there's a there's a good fun aspect to that absolutely so another interesting thing that you talk about in your book is you talk about um runa as gravity Mm. could you explain what you mean by that Maybe. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is still one of those underdeveloped ideas. Well, underdeveloped and under development. Um, so I'm, I'm using it in two ways. The first way, I think that any anybody who's involved with working on this kind of work that we do in the temple or, or I suspect other schools are the same, there's a sense of mystery. So we can drop the term runa and we can just talk about a sense of awe or a sense of mystery we feel drawn to something. We feel drawn to different people. The Satanic Bible is an example. If you're a you know, 13-year-old kid picking up this spooky-looking book, there's a sense of mystery. And that, I consider, that draw, that pull, um, is coming from you. You just don't know it yet. Like there's this, there's this aspect of, if you want to call it the self beyond the self or whatever, there's a part of you that you are not consciously aware of yet that's sort of speaking through those experiences, that sense of being pulled towards something. Um, 
and the important factor there is allow yourself to have those feelings. Allow yourself to, to trust what it is you're going toward. And that takes time. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of things that I found mysterious at one point, which were completely asinine. But over time, it starts to develop. And when it's happening, the more that um, you acknowledge those points of mystery, those points of interest, those points of fascination, you yourself start to develop that. And you end up becoming like a, a singularity for other people that you start to bring people towards you, not intentionally necessarily, but just by dint of the work that you're doing, you stand out, you're a bit strange, you're a bit odd, you're a bit off. And then, you know, proto strange, odd, off people will resonate with that and they come forward. And that's how you start building up these communities of individuals of not necessarily like mind, but of related mind. And so to me, that's. I'm still trying to articulate the details of that, but that I wanted to put that out there because I want that dialogue to happen, like to trust that sense of mystery. An example I use in the book is being um, that sense of, of needing to look at um, Haida art, um, so West Coast uh, First Nations art. And it, it's one of those things that I didn't think about for years, but then it came up in my mind. I'm like, oh man, I really, I, you, know, you see an image and it, it starts to resonate. You feel that that change and that movement inside. So it's like I had two options. Do I ignore that and just think, ah, it's you know, the pizza I had yesterday? Or do I think, well, I'm all, I'm I'm going to go follow through with this. I'm going to go see what's there. And then so you start that process of investigation, which is the seeker. Uh, and then as you're investigating, you're learning, you start to go on to do sort of tangential aspects, the explorer. You open up to more and more divergent ideas connected to that. And after you start working with that more, you become that mystery. And so that's what I'm trying to work out right now. And that's, and that's what I'm sort of getting at is Runa's gravitational pull is that we're pulled by it. And by working with it, we pull others. So it's kind of like a magnetism thing. Yes. So, um, so is it possible for someone to be magnetically drawn or gravitated towards something that's actually bad for them? Oh, for sure. I have no doubt. And that's, I think, the way that one would possibly mitigate that to some degree would be that self-understanding, that, that self-reliance, that you're less likely to be um, drawn aside to something which is destructive. Pain is fine. Pain happens. We make stupid mistakes. We learn. We move on. And, and then we, we grow through that process. So friction and pain and bad mis and bad choices and mistakes, that's part of being human. But if when it becomes um, almost like an addiction or it becomes com you know compulsive, where this just keeps happening over and over again, well, that's indicative of something else. That's some other pattern or some other issue that's not being addressed. And recognizing that is really important. But yeah, I, I don't think it's a I don't think anything on the left-hand path would be considered, um, you know, completely good or completely bad. It's, it's the circumstances that are going on at that time. And it's up to the individual to question why they feel these things, not so, to ignore it. So, so how does someone know then? So, so sometimes there are do, – do you think that there are bad people out there that are good at attracting people to them? For, hmm. for deleterious purposes, to take advantage of them, to, you know, 
um, to do bad things to them. Do you think that's possible? And, and, and how does someone know the difference if they're being attracted to things? Especially when you're talking about groups and initiatory yeah. schools and stuff like that, because there's, you know, there's, there's, there's bad, bad people out there. So how does someone tell the difference? How does someone know? Well, I guess the, the easiest way is to be taken advantage of. So that's the first. Well, then, way. you know, right. But yeah. a lot of people, a lot of people don't. A lot of people get taken advantage of for years and years and years before they finally just really. And they're even like a part of them is aware of it, but they have buffers in themselves that prevent them from seeing it. I mean, we're hearing lots of people. There's lots of people now uh, coming out about, uh, you know, Scientology where they're like, oh, yeah, I do for the last 30 years that it was like, you know, is bullshit. They're keeping me as a prisoner, but I didn't do anything about it. So um, so 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 how do you approach that phenomenon and what what you're talking about here? Um, how do you discern that what you're being attracted to is something good? So I guess for me, um, what I look for are the works. Like, what is it that the this person or these people produce? What are their What are their students like? What are their initiates like? If we're talking about initiatory schools mm-hmm. or, or religions, like, what is it that you're doing? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're sitting around talking about raising spectral energies that wrap around other, I don't know what the fuck they would do. <laughs> just, right. <laughs> You know, it's just it's just like it's just the sense that what do you do and what are you communicating? Because that's where that critical thinking comes in. So the mystery may be there. They may very well have uh, an aesthetic which is very, very resonant with something, some aspect of yourself that you're not aware of. Or maybe you are aware of it. And that's what made you look at it, first of all. Mm -hmm. But then you have to let the critical analysis come in and say, okay, impress me. Show me what you have. Show me what you do. Mm -hmm. Like. One thing with the the temple set, which I found really, um, really impressive when I first thought of joining, was the fact that there's these bylaws. You know, there's a list of bylaws, mm-hmm. and they're not, you know, they're they're systematic bylaws. So this shows that this is an organization that tends to be, it plans to be around for a very long time. This is not a cult of personality. It's not about an individual. It's about people coming together and doing work, and. I, I feel that there's a lot out there that shows the kind of level of work that we do collectively and individually. Um, so that's the first thing. What do you see? Um, what are the, what are past initiates talking about? Like if they if they say, oh, I'm so upset because this person was mean to me. Well, that, I don't give a shit about that. But if they're saying that there's some serious problems with this and they can articulate that, you need to do due diligence. You need to do your research. Individually, I don't know. I, I'm not sure... Um, I always give everyone the benefit of the doubt until they're proved me wrong, you know, and so I'm open as much as I need to be to be able to communicate with a person, you know, being aware of body language, being aware of the, the words that they use, you know, and that comes from being aware in that moment, not thinking 30 different thoughts about where you're going to be in five minutes or, you know, going for dinner a couple hours from now, you're fully engaged with that conversation. Because if they are those kind of psychic vampires and then they're well aware of how to use those tools and those are the kind of people that um you know maybe it's time to do some some fencing or some bandying about and see what happens yeah well you mentioned psychic vampires and so that was uh you know that was one of the things that i was thinking of i was thinking mm-hmm. um in in uh Setian practice we have the idea of lesser black magic and a lot of uh, the teachings around that are not just how you, you know, um, you know, use technology to change things, but how you become aware 
mm-hmm. of all of the attempts that are going on around you, all, everything that's going on around you that's attempting to control you, to draw you into it, you know, everything from uh, McDonald's ads to government propaganda and, and uh, CNN and everything else in between. And then, um, of course, in the Satanic Bible, you have this big thing on psychic vampires, which is, that's part of the, you know, um, in Anton LaVey's whole system, one of the really significant things that uh, he felt the need to impart to anyone who's going to study the systems, you need to be aware that there's people out there that don't really have any other motive other than fucking you over and sucking up all your energy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's the people that are People do that all the time, I think, if they're not generally aware of how they react to people. It could be, you know, the way they cock their eyebrow or the way that they're constantly asking questions or or whatever. They may not be aware of that. So then if you're aware of how they're trying to manipulate you unconsciously, then you can just either call their bullshit or just, you know, meet it head on and just say, fine, I'm going to ride this out. But it's the people that are, are very astute at using these tools that are the ones that you have to be really careful about, not in a paranoid way, but just be wary of the fact that they're they're working an angle that, you know, luckily you'll probably understand, but there are people that won't understand that and they're going to be taken aside and and along for the ride, whatever it is. And that's that's unfortunate. But, you know, take, like, again, it comes back down to the fact that this is a lot of hard work. Do you think someone can become adept at identifying dangerous influences or dangerous people psychic vampires i i would think so i think it's i mean it's not like it's a mystical sort of undertaking you can look at anybody that's anybody that does any kind of work with the public generally you'll if you're really aware of what you're doing you'll notice patterns that re reassert themselves um i don't yeah i don't know i don't really think about it because it's usually just sort of ingrained with, you know, who am I talking to and how are they communicating? That's always in the back of my mind. And it's, it's just looking at that. So I have no doubt that people will feel, uh, some kind of, I forget the name of the book. It's, uh, the, Oh no, something of, um, fear. Dang it. I can't remember. Anyway, there, there are, there are, um, there's evidence to indicate that we, we we will react in certain circumstances, whether there's danger or, or um, uh, you know, we just don't trust somebody. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes we're going to be wrong, but there's some animal aspect to us that understands that there's something off about this person. And we have to be able to trust and, you know, listen to those facets within ourselves. Kind of like but instinct. Yeah, it, it is instinctual. And I think, I don't know if people see it like social animals are – you know, predators are the same, no different than predators down in the savannas, you know, or something like this is, this is something which we need to acknowledge and, and recognize. Yeah, definitely. So, um, another thing that I noticed that you mentioned several times in this book is you refer to the Diabolicon. Mm. Could you tell me why that's been an influence for you? Um, yeah, and actually, it's. We'll get to that in a moment. So, what, um, one of the main influences of it, of course, is the connection to the esoteric order of Beelzebub. So, if you look at the statement of Beelzebub, one of the one of the great things about that is this idea of I'm incomplete, 
And so there's this idea that we need to consistently work towards understanding ourselves and work towards our initiation. And I don't think that ever ends. And one thing I learned from the conference, to kind of go back to that for a second, was the term initiation. Some people see that term to mean like a, a ritual or a rite, like there's a, an initiation ritual. That's not what I'm referring to. This is a, a process of becoming more and more yourself. Um, and so the Diabolicon has a very interesting story of this, this um, process of becoming separate from the collective, separating oneself from the norm and becoming an individual. Mm-hmm. So on that level, the statement of Beelzebub is really interesting to me. But also, and I've just started re- re- uh, recently thinking about this, I want to be able to write a, another book on the explorer um, perspective, which I think is very connected to uh, esoteric order of Beelzebub, my experience within the order. Um, I think the Diabolicon is a prime example of exploration. Um there's that separation from from the collective, from the norm, and then you go off. Well, where do you go off? Who gives a shit? Just go. Like, put it in a direction and keep traveling until you get to where you need to get to. And to me, the Diabolicon is a great example of that. And so one of the areas I want to start looking at are different myths, um, stories, um, television, movies, whatever, about the idea of exploration, of what is this what are the commonalities? What are the trait common traits to that? So the Luciferian aspect is very much connected to that as well, that that casting out, that going on your own. <clears throat> Absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that I uh, had flashed through my mind reading the Diabolicon at different points in time was um, the concept of space migration and mm-hmm. um, really quite literally Battlestar Galactica. And I got to admit mm-hmm. right now, that's, that's sort of uh, the ideas that were going through my mind um, with uh, the Airbeth transmissions. So mm-hmm. if I can make a movie about this, it's going to look kind of like Battlestar Galactica, but there's going to be demons in it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and no stupid robot dog. Right, no stupid robot dog. So definitely, uh, what was his name? Muffy? Muffy there. Or Muffet? Muffet. 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 Um, and it was a Daggett. Isn't that what it was called? It was a Daggett, yeah. right? So, yeah, and there's no Daggett's in the Diabolicon, <laughs> and there's no damn Daggett's in the Airbath transmissions, nor shall there ever be. So, um, so do you get – and, and you know, um, that whole Luciferian thing that you refer to of like, you know, hey, I'm going to stand alone – a, I'm going to go off on my own and and explore journey into the unknown. You know, to me that's another that's another uh, value that's like wrapped up in all that. Is like I'm going to uh, I have the courage. I'm going to journey off on my own. Do you um, did you get uh, a sense of that sort of idea at the um, Left Hand Path conference that you were at? Is that sort of the the vibe that people were like? Uh, were people open to that sort of vibe, I guess? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I wasn't able to speak to a lot of people often, you know, for extended periods of time. Um, but I think there's a core value of um, not going off on your own in the sense of isolating yourself from everybody and, and you know, being a lone wolf, um, but being able to to do your thing the way you need to do it. And to be unapologetic about that. Uh, and that's hard, you know? And so you could tell people had, you know, there's some bu- bruising going on. Um, 
you would see some people talk about, you know, I think it was the um, uh, Temple of Satan, I believe. So the 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 the, um, the sort of rebellion aspect, the social rebellion. I mean, for some people, that's essential, and that that's really hard. That's standing your ground against the majority of individuals who see what you're doing as a threat or as stupid or as um, you know just juvenile or something. And it's like no. Um, the same thing with like for me, the, the art that I create. Some people may look at that and see it's very simple, but the fact is, I'm communicating something which is much, much more complex. And so then it's like it took me a while to be able to say, yeah, I'm okay with this. This is how I communicate through image. And it's, this is my path. This is the way I do things. And to hell with anybody else that wants to, you know, tell me otherwise that it's, you know, oh, you're wasting your time. You should be out doing something else. So I think that there's that common thread, I think with everyone that was there. Yeah, for sure. Right. And you know, some people respond to that idea and they say, um, you know, one of the critiques of it is, you know, no man is an island. You go up by yourself, you know. But, you know, I mean, that's been the attitude of all the great uh, creators and movers and shakers throughout history, you know. Oh, you go off go off on your own like, you know, Nikola Tesla or, uh, you know, or Elon Musk or, um, you know, Steve Jobs and stuff like that, you know. It's like it's always people that like go off on their own, mm-hmm. you know, possessed by some vision they're like, fuck it, I'm going to do it my way, that end mm-hmm. up like really, really changing things in a profound way, don't you think? Yeah, for sure. But of course, if you look at someone like Tesla, there's there's also benefit to understanding how to work the game, you know, and how to, how to um, stay involved and engaged with the society around you. Even if you're not playing by their rules, there's still a benefit to be able to live in both worlds, live on your own, live, live your, your own path, but also understand what's around you. And I think to me, that was really hard because it was easy to go talk to angels and archangels and goddesses and gods and shit. It was far more difficult to go get my mortgage. You know, right. it's like, I don't understand. Right. <laughs> in fact, that's exactly what I told the, the, the banker. I said, you got to treat me like I'm five years old. And of course they're trying to, Oh no, no, it'll be fine. No dude, you don't understand. <laughs> pretend I am five years old because this is confusing to me. Uh, so yeah, no, I agree. Absolutely. And that's, it's going off on your own, um, but doesn't mean going off into, onto the top of a mountain into a cave and never having contact with anybody. That may be part of it, you know, but that can't be the whole thing. In my mind, that can't be the whole thing. Well, no, it can't. Absolutely. And it doesn't, to, to say, uh, um, I'm going to, you know, fuck everything. I'm going to go follow my own vision. It doesn't mean I'm cutting off ties with everyone. Yeah. You know, I'm going to not communicate, you know, you don't have to cease communication with other people in order to, in order to, uh, you know, pursue, uh, individuality or your individual vision. I mean, look at even like the example of the Diabolicon. Well, who's he talking to, to tell this story? There's other people, there's other people around still, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. there's other daemons like went along with them. So well, and of course, Beelzebub is the first one that says, oh, I want to be like you. And so he's like, ah, no, you got to go do your own thing. Yeah, <laughs> like, right. You can't be me. <laughs> it's a tough lesson he had to learn. Yeah. And he keeps learning it. So um, you mentioned the uh, the Satanic Temple. Mm. And so I got to ask your opinion on this because this is something that you hear going around out there. Do you think that Satanism and atheism – are the same thing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
So I think I think from a I'm gonna go to a, like a I'm gonna go wordy here for a second. No, I, I think the term Satanism cannot mean just atheism. I think there's enough academic research on on contemporary Satanism that will show you there are different milieus or different um, interpretations or understandings. I think the Church of Satan um, is the bastion of the atheistic. I mean, that's how it kind of started. That the main, at least. Um, uh, proponent for, for that was that idea but there are also so many theistic people that claim to be theistic satanists or whatever so to me it's kind of a it's an irrelevant point but i think it's indicative of of um sort of the the direction that things are moving um we see the four horsemen of of the apocalypse uh, the hitchens and and crew we see that atheism is becoming more of a uh, a stream it's more acceptable in some ways um, but then who knows where that's going to lead. That can be also self-defeating, you know, if, if it goes off. There are things which, I mean, I don't consider myself necessarily theistic in any ways, but there are things which, you know, depending on how rigid atheism is, that would look at some of my own experiences and say, that's bullshit. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't care. <laughs> They're my experiences. And uh, so I don't know. I find it uh, the more militant one is about indicating what they are or are not, I think the closer you are to being bound by that, by, you know, by some kind of external structure. So I hate that you asked this question because I don't know quite how to answer it. <laughs> I don't know the answer either, but I feel like when I hear that, and, I, and, and it's something that you generally hear in the media. It's something that's generally said during interviews. Um, I feel that it's like kind of like an oversimplification of yeah. things. And I think anyone who's following any sort of like, you know, religious or spiritual path must be open to some sort of unknown, you know. Um, and, and, and I've heard people on the, uh, you know, satanic atheism side – um, because you really, I, I think they need to invent a new word for it, like like satanic atheism, or <laughs> maybe that's it, satanic atheism. <laughs> you heard it, you heard it first on the show here, okay, on Damonosophy 2.0, satanic atheism. <laughs> um, because you know you're right. Like I, I always think, you know, one of these days, someone is going to hand a note to you know, Chris Hitchens or Sam Harris and say, well, you know, there's this whole group of like, there's this whole religion of Satanists that consider themselves like atheists. And they say it's the same thing. And then, you know, Chris Hitchens, Chris or Sam, they're going to get up on stage and they're going to tear that apart so fast. <laughs> Seriously. So, <laughs> I mean, if you don't believe, if you metaphysically, if you're metaphysically on the same page as the atheists are, then, then you have to explain what the value is in calling yourself a Satanist, and then you're just pretty much well, it's shock value, and mm -hmm. you know maybe a lot of people on that campus say, well, yeah, it is shock value, but it's worth it. It's worth it, you know. Um, but then I guess those of us who follow it as a uh, more spiritual path, um, I mean, obviously we think it's uh, something more than shock value, and a lot of mm -hmm. people I know who who follow. Uh, the left-hand path as a spiritual path are really not interested in shock value. A lot yeah. of them kind of want to avoid shock value. They, they want to avoid all that. They don't want to like have a big media circus, you know? We have they just to want do, to go do their thing. I, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So, uh, so thanks for, uh, you know, rolling along with that, that incredibly highly charged question. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so, you know, we'll see what happens with, uh, the, the, the satanic and, uh, atheism thing. Something else I wanted to ask you about is, um, and I, I know you've, you've been out there and you've seen a lot of this like going on out there, but what do you think about, um, people who identify with the um, Setian mode and mm. and work with Setian ideas because there's Setian ideas all over out there in the media, um, mm. but but choose to never uh, affiliate with the Temple of Set Incorporated. Mm. Um, what what do you think all that means? Well, I think first I would have to if someone claims to be Setian and not in the temple, but they claim to be in the temple, that's not cool. Um, to me, that's just wrong. But if someone's if someone's grooving with what we would call the aeon of set, or someone's connected to that idea, that understanding of of you know psychocentric approach to, to to life, more power to them. I want I want to have a, a world populated by people who are individuals, people who are inspired, people who are creative, people who are passionate. Not to say that. You have to be setting to do that, but I don't know a single setting who bores me, who is, you know, a person who is, you know, that does nothing with, with their life. And, and to me, uh, if, if what we've produced um, since 1975 has been something which inspires individuals, good. You know, we, the temple set's not for everybody. And it's, that's cool. I'm fine with that. Um, but dipping into that well, um, using the inspired that worked, I mean, that's a, that's a comment on what we do. If someone else rolls out with that in a different way, you know, so long as it's respectful and not, you know, claiming to be their own and, you know, whatever, then that's happened in the past and it will continue to happen because people find a good thing and then they just want to, you know, cash in on it. But, um, yeah, I, I, I want to see a world where there's more people like that. I agree. Uh, I think the world can only benefit. So, so this was my next uh, charged question for you: is what is the benefit? <laughs> What's the benefit of a world populated by people who are charged with individuality? Well, first, it's interesting, and really, that is to me the one of the most uh, important answers. It's like because it's cool for me to be there, you know. You know, sitting at the bus, hearing someone talk. Oh, never mind. I'll just go off on a diatribe. Um, That's never fine. mind. So, <laughs> hey, we got as much time as you need. <laughs> Well, all right. I, I'm not. So I went to a, a, a pagan meet and greet um, a while back and I, I hadn't been around a pagan community in a long time. So I thought I'd come in and and they went around the table and, oh, what kind of pagan are you? And it came to me and I said, well, pagan positive. I'm not really <laughs> a priest of the Temple of Seth. But and it was interesting because the conversations that occurred. Uh, Justin and I were there. I, I just met him face to face. So we were talking about, you know, how we've how we've changed ourselves, how we screwed our lives around, but then fixed it better and stronger, like the six million dollar man. We talked about that. And what did I hear beside me was what crystal was used, what color candle did this and what kind of goddess thing was over there. And I'm like, but who are you? <laughs> like, Where is you in this? And so I was really um, that to me was, you know, Justin and I were talking, we were, we were communicating in a way that of like mind, 
you know, he's not in the temple of set and, you know, may never be. But the fact is there's a, there's a comrade, you know, there's someone that I can talk to, someone that can communicate with and we can bounce each other's ideas off each other. And that's one of the reasons why we started UAST was this sense of, Let's just do some crazy sounds. Let's get some inspired stuff going, some Gnostic bizarre music that we're going to put out. Let's see where this goes, that curiosity aspect. And so that's the benefit is that there's more more sense of, of um, uh, creativity. And what, what if, what's life if there's no creativity? Doesn't doesn't mean it has to be art necessarily, but you're creating your life. That's initiation. And uh, you need to be able to do that really well, or otherwise you get kind of a shit life, you know, <laughs> someone else plans it for you instead of you. Yeah. You know, some people would say, well, you don't want everyone uh, in the world following left hand path individuality because then everyone would be like, you know, uh, you know, taking advantage of each other. <laughs> so what what would you say to that? I think, well, I think I don't think that's ever a risk. So I think while it, while it, yes, we need people to, you know, do things that maybe left-hand pathers don't want to do. I don't know. I understand what's being implied there, but I don't think that's ever going to be an issue because there are people that will, like nationalism is a, is a prime example. There will always be people who are card-carrying devotees of whatever, you know, the flags waving. That's fine. But they're the ones that are going to, you know, protect the country really well, or be look out for the global interests and whatever. That's fine. I don't need to worry about that. I'm going to go do my thing. Um, not to say I couldn't do that and 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 be on the left hand path, but for me, that's not a thing. Um, but there are people that have are part of that greater system, and they do really good things in there for that system. And we need a system. I, I like our system. <laughs> our system works fairly well considering what the options are. Okay. So yeah, I, I mean, I get what's going on, but I don't really see that that's going to be ever an issue. So meh. maybe we try, maybe we find out we could always go to a different planet. Like, yeah. we just take off. <laughs> that's what I would say. I mean, I think, uh, a scenario of lots of people trying to take advantage of each other. I think that's actually what we have right now, isn't it? <laughs> In a world populated with largely with really, you know, supposedly well-behaved monotheists, you know, um, and and we have like, uh, well, a lot of people taking advantage of each other and lots of like heinous wars and stuff like that. So I think everyone uh, giving individuality um, a shot or maybe mm-hmm. and, and also because what's tied up with that is the sense of personal responsibility, in my opinion, to really embrace individuality. You really have to uh, understand and embrace personal responsibility, you know, rational self-interest, all those other good things. Yeah, for sure. So um, that kind of leads us to the question of uh, morality. And I know that that was a discussion uh, that came up at the uh, gathering in in Ottawa. So, um, could you give us a sense of how that all went, or or your thoughts on that? I know uh, Don Webb uh, uh, presented a talk on that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so Don had a uh, had made a uh, presentation, recorded presentation. So that was played while we were there, and it was near the end too. So. It was interesting because everyone's kind of tired and dopey. And then, you know, this this presentation came on and it was really interesting. And I'm not I'm not going to try to recount what what Don said, because it's 
as you know, with anything that Don says, is there's 50 different layers of meaning on it. So at one level, it's what the words come out, but what they mean is something completely far more complex. And it was a great talk. And let me just insert that that's all. You can find that on YouTube right now, too. It's like Don Webb talk at um, at uh, Flambeau Noir. And it's a great, a great, uh, great talk on this subject. For sure. And um, what was interesting was that he had provided us with um, nine questions that as a group, we got together after the presentation and we sat around in a circle and essentially read out the question. And then we had a dialogue about that. Um, We got to question three or four, but the nine questions are still uh, they're They're listed at, at that video. And I think that's really important because that's the kind of thing you take away for your journal. That's something which you, you know, you write out those nine things and you answer them. And then you go, you know, a year later, two years later, come back. Is that still what I think? Is that still what I believe? You know? And so the, what, what I thought was really great, aside from Don's obviously very erudite and very um, uh, meaningful presentation, was that this dialogue happened with all of us sitting around in a circle discussing what we thought of these questions. And I don't know where else that would ever happen. You know, I mean, within a school, that makes sense. Fine. I mean, you could easily do that. And you'll be speaking the same language. You'll be speaking the same words. And, and you have a reasonably similar background or understanding. But when you have people that are from different perspectives, from different traditions, coming together to discuss morality in a left-hand path, um, I think it's really remarkable. And I don't know that that would happen could have happened, you know, 20 years ago or something. I think this is a, a time where these kind of conferences are, um, you know, sort of reflect a changing in perspective. You know, people are, are taking responsibility for standing for themselves and talking about what they what they do and what they think. And morality is one of those things where on the left-hand path, you essentially give the middle finger to society, but you still need rules. You still need to understand how to live your life, you know, you know, right thought, right, right word, right deed. And that has to come through trial, not trial and error. <laughs> That's the wrong thing. It has to come through, you know, self-development and understanding. And um, it, you have to have those guidelines set up for yourself. What is it to be a good person? What is it to be, a you know, right? Um, in the sense of being um, true to who you are and what your path is. And if your path happens to be some kind of sociopathic lunatic, well, probably that's not right. <laughs> I probably need to look, reinvest some, inform, you know, some discussion in that. I don't think people like that will even ask that question though. You know, no. I think, I think that's part of the definition of a sociopath or whatever is they don't even ask a question like that. If you say that, if you say, Hey, you need to ask yourself this question. They'll be like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. I did. Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> they'll just tell you what, what, whatever they think you want to hear. Well, I think, I think one of the things to remember, at least for me, is that you do have to develop your own sort of moral guidelines, but it doesn't mean that they're not also reflected in societal norms. That's fine, because sometimes they will. And there's obviously some things which are, are very well reflected in social, um, social morality. But you have to come to that understanding yourself by stripping away all the things that people tell you, this is the good or this is the right. And then you have to decide, well, is it and why is it? You know, and those questions are really hard. Voting, and I'm not going to get onto an, into a discussion about this necessarily, but that's one of the things where if you were to tell someone, well, I don't vote, well, you have to. Well, why? Well, you have to. Well, why? 
well, because it's the right thing to do. But why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you have to go on and ask those questions because they've never asked that question. Mm-hmm. And that's just one example. It could be a myriad of other things. But it's it's one of those hard, long, arduous and tiring things that we have to do on the left hand path. Yeah. Uh, to me, anything that involves coercion or force to me is uh, immoral. To me, that's a betrayal of morality. And, you know, one of the things that, that, that always comes up is people try and force other people to do something because it's moral. They, they force them to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. But by forcing them, you're, 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 you're violating their free will. Mm-hmm. So just the act of forcing someone to do it. This is all this is all in a, if you've ever seen the movie Clockwork Orange, that's yeah. the subject of a Clockwork Orange. So if you yeah. force someone to be moral, it doesn't actually make them moral, you know. <laughs> um, but but the interesting thing about what you just described about how this uh conversation took place in Ottawa that mm. it took place in the context of a school mm. and and that the the result of this was you know there was something very enlightening and informative about the conversation taking place in this particular context and that's something that you talk about um in your book as well um you talk about uh initiatory schools and, mm-hmm. and the need to work in an initiatory school. So could you talk about that and could you explain what you mean by that? Because some people are going to hear this and say, well, yeah, I went to, you know, when I was a senior in high school, I was in school and I didn't learn anything, you know, about, about uh, you know, initiation or whatever. So what do you mean by that when you're talking about school? Sure. Um, well, obviously, in the context of the book, I was referring to the Temple of Set, which is a school of the left-hand path. Um, it's also, um, you know, a religious temple for priesthood. But prior to that, for the majority of individuals, it's a place to come together with like mind, with um, passion, fervor, and and to pursue your initiation. What a school allows in this case, we'll just say a group of individuals that, that rally under a, a, I don't know, I guess a central idea, a central concept. In our case, it's Kefir within the, within the temple. But what it means is that you have comrades, colleagues along the, along the path so that they can challenge you. You can challenge them. You can learn from them. They can learn from you. Um, there's dialogue, there's, there's conversation, there's, um, and the most, probably the most important is the bullshit detector. If you go off and do your own thing, there's no one there to challenge you. It goes back down to the basement, you know, playing your music in the basement. If no one ever hears you, how shitty you play guitar, that not you, but one. <laughs> <if you, laughs> hey, man, I'm not that bad, okay? <laughs> so if, if, if no one's there to challenge you and to say, you know, that's the worst thing I've ever heard. And then you have to be able to take that. And it's not to, not to say that, that, you know, you enter the temple set and all of a sudden it's, people are jumping all over you and ripping things apart. No. But what it is, what it does mean is that you can guarantee that there are people that will pay attention, that are going to listen, right. that are going to watch, that are going to communicate. And you don't get that on your own. You can do that. You can find comrades along the path, but they're not concentrated and aligned in the same way that a school would. And using a term that, you know, Gurdjieff would use in his in his writings or the fourth way, um, 
you know, the idea that you have a, a not necessarily a lineage, but a, a um, let's stay with it, a vibe um, that resonates that we work with. And um, to me, that's really important. And I only say it's important to me because after spending 20 some years not doing that, you know, being maybe an associate member of something or maybe, a, you know, you have an email guide or something that you talked to over email once every three months or something, something very different when you're, when you're communicating mouth to ear or you have um, connection with a teacher who is speaking to you and has gone through what you've gone through in their own way, but they can still reflect and resonate that path or that experience and be able to communicate that with you or to you. So to me, it's, there's, it's a no brainer. It doesn't mean you have to stay there forever. Maybe it's just a one stop along the road. But if you haven't done work in a school like that or with a group of people who are dedicated to learning and, and thriving, then any, it's just, I don't know. It just seems ridiculous. People often, especially you know people in chaos magic or something or people that don't want to be involved in groups, they'll always say, oh, groups are stupid. I don't want to be part of it. I was one of those people um, because it's so much easier not to deal with that. I'm just going to do my own thing. Um, but when you say, all right, I'm going to trust these people are not nuts. And I'm going to trust that these people can teach me something. And if they can't, then I'm going to continue on. Um, but you don't know unless you try. No, I agree. And, you know, it's like going back to um, when we were talking about the Diabolicon and the idea that, um, you know, going off on your own doesn't mean that you actually become a hermit and you never, you know, cut off all, you know, live in an isolation tank for the rest of your life. Mm. You know, you go and you talk to other people and, and this is how we, how we do things in life. This is how humans behave, right? So there's this old saying, there's a saying in, 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 uh, uh, I don't remember where it's from, but business is done in the places where business is done. So... <laughs> You know, all, all people, we, we, you know, in order to create value and earn money to survive, we go and we communicate with other people. If we want to learn about, you know, how to uh, work on cars and we want to go talk to people who work on cars and exchange ideas with them. And if we want to learn about um, initiation or philosophy or whatever, we got to go find people who do that. You go to like schools, like like ordinary schools, school in the ordinary sense, universities and and and, and public schools, which I think are the worst example possible of of, of a, a place where you go to learn things. But the same idea is there. The idea is there. Well, you're going to go talk to other people, especially university, uh, mm-hmm. public school isn't like that at all. You're just going to hang out with other people who are also forced to come into this little area to sit and listen to like what this one person who represents this larger organization is going to tell them that reality is. Uh, but universities kind of have that idea that all the students that are there are like working on, you know, whatever, uh, you know, you know, philosophy or, or, mm. um, you know, whatever it is they're going there for. And it's the same thing with an esoteric school. So if you want to learn about, um, you know, initiation, if you want to understand more about what uh, the soul is, if you want to understand what, you know, man's purpose is, if man has a purpose, if we have a purpose uh, in this world, then uh, I will find other people who have also pursued this question, you know, and uh, as long as they don't um, sort of have that, sort of demonstrate that uh, desire to 
uh, be coercive or to control me. And as long as there's like a friendly sort of exchange going on, then um, then perhaps there would be something something there that's useful. Well, for sure. And, and one of the more probably the most important thing is someone to share your confusion with. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, that's this is one thing I'm very adamant about. I don't know shitloads of things. <laughs> and so I, you know, acknowledging that you have limits and it's something I, some people on left-hand path can have a problem with. Like, I do not know everything. I am not a divine being at this moment in the sense that I'm, you know, omnipotent, not om, uh, omnipotent. I don't have the power to do this stuff. So what I do have though, is this insatiable need to understand more and more and more. And, you know, that goes on, hopefully till I'm dead and probably after, who knows, we'll find out. Yeah. Um, I agree. It's sort of that, um, it's that thirst for knowledge can be a commonality that, uh, connects people that, that draws people together going back to what, um, you were saying earlier and what you wrote about in your book about gravity, uh, Mm. associated with Runa, the mystery, um, that that alone can be the force that draws people together and mm-hmm. and and by them being drawn together a a certain sort of uh a a new quality of energy can ar- can arise from that mm-hmm. so let's talk about music you're a musician you could use that label <laughs> <laughs> What? Yes. Is there a better label? I have no idea. Um, the way I look at it, you know, I'm a half-assed drummer, self-taught. So I don't consider myself a drummer. I play drums. You know, I I, I make soundscapes. <laughs> I do things with tones and sounds. I don't know the first thing about music, but I know that, I, you know, I have a passion to, to communicate things about my initiation. And, and music or sounds is one of those passions. And so... You know, I do with what with it what I can. Well, I think you do some great stuff, and uh, I've heard lots of it, uh, different things that you've done, and I had some fun collaborating with you mm. on some of that uh, Red Planet Choir stuff. Yeah, those are good those are times. Good. <laughs> so um, you've got some new stuff now, right? Yeah. Um, so Obsidian will. Uh, right now is we're in recording uh, some tracks, which um, is always interesting because it's one thing playing live or in rehearsal, whole another thing when you're trying to record something. We're not always consistent with how we deliver our music, so it's kind of fun to put those together. Uh, so we're we're in the process of doing that, and then um, uh, under a shining trapezohedron um, is. I'm not sure where that's going to go yet right now, but that's a, that's definitely a sound art project, um, more for soundscapes, that kind of thing. That's good. So UWAST, I'm yeah. pronouncing that right, UWAST. Yeah. So that's that's the soundscape stuff. That's more like that's that would be good, uh, like ritual chamber music, good uh, meditation, Precise. reflecting yeah. type stuff. Car- uh, scaring the neighbors. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> I love scaring my neighbors. My God. <laughs> I can't get enough. I was mulching today with my neighbors. We mulched the uh, our uh, our front commons area today, and oh. I uh, tried to you scare them at every opportunity. But my mulching, I tried some <laughs> radical mulching techniques to see if that would like freak them out. 
But uh, so Obsidian, Obsidian Will is more kind of the rock project, more kind of jam. That's where you play drums. Yeah, I would say drums. And I just bought a, um, a synthesizer, so I'm trying to figure out how to use that. Um, yeah, that that's the more structured band, I guess. Would say I don't know, rock would be the right term, but uh, it's you know we're inspired by different um, like funeral doom and things like that, and and uh, sort of noise and uh, drone. So those are kind of the three, the trident, the trifecta of Obsidian Will, and we we work with our uh, with our skill sets to to do what we can with that. Cool. All right. Well, we're going to check out uh, a song. Would you like to tell us a little bit about the song? Well, so the, the song itself is uh, Teratogenesis, and um, I, I call it Tetragesis because I can't say the Teratogenesis. Uh, this was a lyrics were written by my um, bandmate, um, Liam Kennedy, and his... Uh, his inspiration was sort of the idea of taking these, you know, different types of uh, monsters and creating these things. So I can't really speak to his inspiration to it, but for, for me, it's probably our most uh, rocky song. And uh, it's, it's one that I really enjoy playing because the riff's really fun. Uh, it's really kind of dirgy and it, it reflects, I think, um, the entertainment value that we, we have in creating the music. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, any final words? I just, you know, keep creating, keep burning that fire. You know, don't let that go out. Don't let people quelch that and, um, and just get out there and do stuff. All right. Well, hey, thank you so much, Dr. Keen, for spending some time talking with us this evening. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to leave you with Tetragenesis.
this is doom metal. I think it's stuff like uh, St. Vitus or Candlemas, like super heavy, dirge, dark shit. I love it. You can check out more Obsidian Will stuff online at Bandcamp or just Google Obsidian Will. They got four albums out there, and as you heard, there's some great new stuff on the way. You can also Google Dr. Keen's new book, Black Horizons Perspectives, and purchase it from lulu.com. There's a lot of great ideas and perspectives in this book, applicable to magicians and seekers at all stages. Get the book, read it. It will make you a smarter person. If you dug any of this, please leave comments and rate the podcast at iTunes. And if you have any comments or questions you'd like to see discussed on the show, you can go find the Damonosophy Facebook group and join that and put things out there. Or you can email them to levitmong at yahoo.com. That's L-E-V-I-T-M-O-N-G at Yahoo. Levitmong is an Enochian word meaning as the beasts of the field for those interested in that sort of thing. And until next time, my friends and fellow demons, keep the dark fire burning.